Welcome to Regulatory Ramblings. Our guest today is Dr. Oriel Kadvia, and he's an authority on fintech. And since last December, he has been the host of the Digital Tomorrow podcast. He'll be talking to us today on CBDCs, or central bank digital currencies. Just to give you a quick rundown of his background, Oriel is a fellow at the Singapore University of Social Sciences. In addition to being an honorary fellow here at the Asian Institute of International Financial Law uh, at HKU, he also works as a board director and co-leader of the Financial Inclusion and CBDC's working groups at the Global Impact Fintech Forum, or GIFT, as well as being the chairman of the private Digital Euro Working Group at Digi the Digital Euro Association and a member of the Board of Advisors at the Blockchain for Europe uh, group. Uh, he's a well-known international speaker and uh, was named Asian FinTech Speaker of the Year last year by Faster Community, and he's participated in over 150 international conferences in the last two years about uh, CBDCs, blockchain, and the use of blockchain in Islamic finance and banking, believe it or not. He's published articles in several international media outlets and has been cited by several more, such as Reuters, Forbes Middle East, and such China Morning Post, here in Hong Kong, Outlook India, China Daily, The Asian Investor, Forecast News, and Cointelegraph. And he joins us today. Oriel, thank you so much for being with us. Glad we were finally able to thank make it happen. Thank you for having me today. Much obliged, much obliged. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. Uh, to start off with, uh, I mean, tell us a little bit about yourself. What what brought you into this space? What got you interested? Everyone had their own epiphany, their own waking moment of, you know, this this is going to be the wave of the future. Blockchain, DLT, crypto, digital assets. This is something that's not going away. What what what? When did your realization come? Well, I would say that same as, as many other things in my life, uh, my epiphany basically came in, in Hong Kong. Um, you know, I, I graduated in law 10 years ago, so I initially started as a lawyer, a traditional lawyer. I worked in corporate finance, uh, well, I mean, corporate law and advising companies, you know, and on, on M&A as well. Uh, then I transitioned towards uh, finance, traditional finance. And when I was uh, living and working in Hong Kong back in 2016, uh, and 17, I realized that uh, the future was um, everything that had to do with uh, tech, no? I mean, uh, fintech, uh, legal tech, and I started to, to attend uh, events and do some networking on the area of fintech, more specifically blockchain, and it was there, I, I would say, when I started to realized that the future was about, first of all, everything tech, but more specifically, I started to learn more, much more about blockchain, its applications, because uh, before then, of course, I mean, I knew what blockchain was, I knew about cryptocurrencies, I knew about DeFi, but my knowledge was quite uh, superficial, you know, to put it some way. I mean, I knew a bit about it, but to be honest, I, I still like very much on what some media said you know, about cryptos being this, the blockchain being that. But it was then in Hong Kong when I started to, to try to dig much, much deeper. And I realized that, of course, I mean, traditional law, traditional finance will keep playing an important role in the future, of course. But right now it's much more than that. You know? I mean, we see this idea of tech anywhere. You know? I mean, we see legal tech, travel tech, and especially when it comes to finance, I think that the role that technologies can play, new technologies, especially blockchain, artificial intelligence, is huge. And it was in Hong Kong, thanks to, to Hong Kong's thriving uh, fintech environment, when I realized uh, that this uh, would be the future. 
Is Hong Kong's environment really thriving, though? I mean, when people compare it to places like Singapore and, you know, Dubai, which has got the fruit. I mean, I don't mean to put down my own town, but I mean, by the same token, you've got to be, you've got to be honest in your, in your reporting. And, and, and I don't know, people feel things may have gotten off to a good promise 2017, 2018, 2019, but things have since stalled. And of course, things have happened locally. But you, 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 you still, um, you still have that sense of promise about the local scene here, or, or um, I mean, what, 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 what gives you, what gives you optimism, if I may ask? I do, I do. I mean, I still keep my my optimism, nonetheless. I would say that the main um, thing hindering Hong Kong's uh, development this last maybe two years has been the pandemic and the restrictions in Hong Kong. No, but we are starting to see some some light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, recently it was announced no, that no hotel quarantine would be required. And I guess those measures will be, will, will keep easing uh, soon. So I would say, yes, Hong Kong is right now a bit in a disadvantage you know, uh, compared to, let's say, Singapore or Dubai. But I would say it's mostly because because people can, can freely enter and leave uh, those places, Singapore, Dubai, whilst they cannot do so in Hong Kong. So, of course, this is always going to be a problem. But the more Hong Kong keeps opening up this coming year, the more Hong Kong will catch up. And Hong Kong has some advantages that, uh, that these other financial centers may not have. I mean, Hong Kong will always be the gateway to China. So I think that that's a very important part. I mean, it's true that Singapore's uh, fintech scene is thriving. That's undeniable. We are seeing like lots of blockchain companies being set up in there and, and I guess this tendency will will keep growing, it will keep increasing, you know, and, and we've been seeing like many big events organized in there. So of course, I mean I won't deny that Singapore has a huge role to play as well. But well Hong Kong has this clear advantage you now of being the gateway to China and this will not change. I mean I would say the only thing that needs to change maybe is how open up to the world Hong Kong is again. And I guess this is already changing. So I'm still optimistic despite uh, the challenges. Okay. Now, it's interesting. In, in, in your intro, I, I spoke about the, I mean, if, if I can draw the inference that, that, that you're, you believe that blockchain technology can be applied to Islamic finance. This is something I do know something about. And at the core of Islamic banking finance is an obsession, a preoccupation with sound money, and that ultimately the soundest money is gold. It's tangible, that which you can touch. Notions then of blockchain and cryptocurrency and digital assets, how do how well how do they play in an environment that, that where the soundest money is gold, as has been the case since ancient times? Yes, well actually blockchain in Islamic finance is one of the topics that I covered that attract more interest because uh, well I would say that not many people write about that or talk about that. I mean I think we need to differentiate once again blockchain as a whole um, compared to cryptocurrencies. No, so when it comes to, to Islamic finance, I mean, first of all, um, Islamic finance. I mean, of course, we call it Islamic finance, but to, to some extent, we could also call it like ethical finance. No, because the principles behind Islamic finance, even if they are religious based, at the end of the day, what they are just trying to establish is this system of, of uh, ethics. No, in finance, to put it to put it some way. So, um, it's you may as well uh, call it Judeo-Christian. Yeah, you may as well call it. Judeo-Christian finance, because that's just how finance was done in the ancient world. People shared risks. Exactly. Exactly. And at the end of the day, I feel like um, it's true that uh, that there are 
it may seem like kind of contradictory to talk about cryptocurrencies and Islamic finance, but first of all, I think we need to talk of blockchain as a whole. And blockchain as a technology can be used, and it's being used in, in certain banks and countries, to improve, uh, for example, processes, to make all the WAKIF processes so uh, much more efficient, transparent. That's what, what blockchain does as a technology. You know, It enables this, this transparency, this, uh, this seamless way of, of, of working, and then when it comes to cryptocurrencies, to this specific application of blockchain that is cryptocurrencies, in Islamic finance, that area is much more tricky. I wrote some articles about that, uh, trying to establish whether they are halal or haram. And it's complicated because not even among uh, Islamic finance scholars, there is there seems to be like a common ground. Uh, I think the idea is that given that Islamic finance tends to, to avoid, or one of its main goals is precisely to avoid speculation, I would say that, um, uh, well, I mean, I, this is like a, a broad statement, no? but I, I would summarize this by saying that most scholars agree that if you use cryptocurrencies for trading purposes, that is for selling them later at a profit by speculating, then they shouldn't be permitted no? in Islamic finance, but they should be considered like a haram. Whereas if you just hold them as a means of payment without trying to speculate, then in that case, they should be permitted. This is one of the most... Um, common theories about cryptocurrencies and Islamic finance, but as I said, there is no common ground. I mean, many scholars think that they should be banned per se because they are haram, no matter what. So it's actually a very tricky topic, but I would say that uh, the main idea I would get from this is that uh, blockchain can play a role in Islamic banking and finance. Maybe not cryptocurrencies so much, but at least blockchain as a technology, yes. No, it's, I mean, it's, it's a valid point because uh, no... The city of London has long, especially HSBC, has long done a roaring business when it comes to Islamic finance, as has Singapore, as has Malaysia, and each practices it a little, little differently in terms of, you know, how the allowance they're willing to make for investments in certain industries, aerospace, defense, how do you segregate the two, what's haram, what's halal, hospitality. You know, serving alcohol, meat. You know, it, it's the, these these discussions can go on forever. But but to the extent that what you were saying that it can make the processes more efficient and hopefully lower cost. That that's important because the critique about Islamic mortgages, assured compliant mortgages, is not enough expertise, not 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 enough deep enough of a liquidity pool. Oftentimes, in the West, for those that want Sharia compliant. Uh, products and uh, the costs are too high vis-a-vis -vis, you know conventional finance but hope you know obviously once things reach a certain critical mass a certain size then hope hopefully one would think there'd be economies of scale but coming back to the central point of today's discussion uh, why do people need the new generation of digital finance and why DeFi, why decentralized finance? We already have de facto digital money systems that work well. People want to know. Well, I think that's a great question. I would say that um, I don't think that we need DeFi. No? I mean, I don't think there is maybe like a, an existential need, but I would say the more options, the better. I mean, I'm personally, I'm, I'm much more interested maybe like in the technology behind it, but I would say that the idea of decentralized finance is actually uh, very interesting because well, DeFi tries to solve uh, several issues, no? In, namely, for example, intermediaries. No, I mean, we know that the traditional finance paradigm relies pretty heavily on, 
on middlemen, no? to, to, to regulate transactions, no? and DeFi tries to end with this, this idea of middlemen, and then uh, also like uh, availability. So DeFi offers uh, many advantages to consumers, such as, for example, eliminating the fees that banks um, charge for using their services, allowing uh, the users to hold their money in, in secure digital wallets instead of keeping them in a bank, um, transferring funds within seconds or even minutes, uh, because we all know that transfers can be quite slow even nowadays. Uh, so in general, reducing trans transaction times and increasing the access to financial services. And that last part is actually very interesting. You know, this idea of uh, making it easier for people to access uh, financial services, because we all know that uh, the lack of financial inclusion is actually a big issue in many countries. I mean, we are talking about an issue in, in well, I mean, India, Pakistan, even in China, there's a huge amount of unbanked people. So I would say that the, the more uh, tech oriented we are, the easier it would be to, to include as many people as possible in our financial systems. I don't mean by that that only DeFi will play this role. I mean, virtual banking, for example, CBDCs can also play this role. So um, if, you, if you ask me, like, uh, do we need DeFi? I would say that, I mean, we existed well before no, DeFi, so maybe we don't need it to survive. But of course, it brings some, some extra values, many advantages that I think it's worth uh, considering. But of course, I mean, and especially given the name of, of this podcast, no, I think that we need to keep uh, always an eye on uh, regulatory issues. Because one thing is what DeFi offers. And I think that DeFi, of course, offers many advantages. But the other thing is how it is regulated. And I know this part is tricky because uh, if there is no proper regulation in place, those advantages ca can kind of uh, blur no, or vanish because you need to make sure, first of all, that in your country, let's say, I don't know, let's talk, for example, about cryptocurrencies. Now, you need to make sure that you can actually use them, trade them, know that there are no prohibitions on make it like uh, virtually impossible or or very expensive to use them. So I would say that, um, I mean, to sum up, I would say that DeFi is actually very interesting because of all those advantages that I just uh, said. But at the same time, uh, well, I mean, regulations are actually a big issue, no? because this, this topic is not regulated like uh, in a uniform way, like everywhere. And therefore, uh, we need to keep an eye open. Yeah, the issue of the issue of financial inclusion's long been um it's long been an issue with the World Bank, IMF, fin you know, the FSB, the Financial Stability Board. Um, I don't know if there are any easy answers, but I mean I think bankers are starting to understand that um well, for the longest time bank I mean, I was at an event, uh, AML event in Dubai hosted by ACAM several years ago and and this is at the end of the last decade and the chap from the chap from Saudi Arabia said that uh, quite openly, for the longest time, banks had gotten fat, lazy, and complacent. Uh, they were just used to people bringing them money. And the people need banking services, not necessarily banks, hinting at, as we know, in certain parts of the world, the Philippines and, and I believe uh, parts of Africa, uh, telecommunications providers are providing pseudo-banking system, I mean, transfer of funds on phones. And uh, that, that, that's, you know, opened up, that's uh, lifted a lot of people out of poverty. It's made commerce and banking possible for them. And um, I mean, I, th I think DeFi hints at that, doesn't it? That the entities that can not only disintermediate banks, but, uh, but central banks as well, which, you know, is an issue for nation states to deal with because 
obviously the sovereign wants to be the one to mint the coin of the realm. Not, not lose well, uh, control over that. Regarding financial inclusion, I would say that, uh, I mean, it's of course a very tricky issue, no? because um, there are many reasons why one can be unbanked. I mean, and one is actually pretty pretty obvious and sad. No, I mean, you can be unbanked basically because you have nothing to bank in. No, I mean, if you have no money, then there is no, I mean, no, no option for you to become banked. And then there is the second case, which is the one that you mentioned from the Philippines, certain parts in Africa, where what you lack is is um, access to, let's say, a physical bank branch. You know, I mean, it's very common, for example, in certain parts of Africa, you know, to see uh, people having like smartphones and laptops, but they may be living in remote towns where what they lack is actually simply a, a bank branch, you know, for them to, to go and that's all. So in those cases, which are not few actually, it's where um, not justify, but also virtual banking, CBDCs can play a major uh, role, you know, I mean, I said Africa, it can be Philippines as well, Indonesia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, even China. I mean, there are like many, many possible cases no, where, where we could apply these ideas. I mean, of course, there is no magic wand for, for financial inclusion, but I would say that, uh, I mean, like, thanks to technology, we have like many more ways to, to solve this or at least to try to mitigate the, the effects no, of the lack of financial inclusion. And you mentioned as well this idea of um, uh, central banks losing maybe power no, because of DeFi. Well, I know this is a concern, but I always um, defend that uh, that DeFi is actually compatible with uh, CBDCs and the current uh, system that we have. No? I, mean, I think that this future of money or future of the financial system or however you want to call it, I actually allows for, for countries, if they want, to, to allow all these uh, new things to coexist. I mean, they can keep, of course, cash, no, which is like the most traditional system. They can keep the electronic transactions that they already that they were already in place in those countries. But at the same time, uh, I think they can, um, for example, create their own CBDC while regulating cryptocurrencies. No, I mean, I don't think that one excludes the other. I mean, of course, the approach of every country will, will differ. It will be different. No, I mean, some countries are more crypto friendly. Others decide to, to banish them. But in theory, it's possible to see coexistence. Certainly the hostility, um, it's interesting to note, the hostility that existed a decade or more ago by national governments, by regulators, has to a great extent subsided, that they realize that this is something they have to deal with. Uh, they have to regulate it, of course. You can't be part of the financial system and play by your own rules, as many, you know, Bitcoin... You know, the libertarian fringe within the Bitcoin movement uh, seemed to be advocating in the early days. But in a sense, once they regulate you, one could say you've arrived. You're respectable now. You're part of society. You're no longer on the outside looking in. You're no longer on the fringe. So um, cer cer certainly that, that, that would be, um, that would be a positive step. But let, let me ask you this. Do you see the current state of, you know, private peer-to-peer -peer cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin being a Trojan horse to get people to ultimately adopt CBDCs, which many nation states, you know, so like China and even the US seem to be interested in passing, creating their own digital currencies. Because ultimately, it's about control. That I don't think they object to the concept. I don't think they object to the technology. 
It's about who controls it, though. Well, um, I think uh, I, I personally don't see cryptocurrencies as a Trojan horse to get people used to, to CBDCs because, I mean, to a large extent, they are like uh, very different uh, ideas. I know that sometimes some people refer to CBDCs as uh, cryptocurrencies, but to be honest, CBDCs are not cryptocurrencies, no, like to begin with. So I know there are some similarities, of course, and from the tech uh, perspective, especially. But the thing is that um, to some extent, CBDCs and cryptos couldn't be more different. I mean, CBDCs, for example, are completely centralized, no? whereas cryptocurrencies are completely decentralized. And aside from that, the use that we will make of each of them is actually very different as well. I mean, we'll use CBDCs to make pretty much the same things that we do with our like um, um, money nowadays. I mean, especially retail CBDCs. No? I mean, we'll use them to get our salary paid in CBDC, uh, to make transfer using CBDCs, to make payments, no, but we are not going to be using them for tra for trading purposes, generally speaking. Whereas when it comes to cryptocurrencies, yes, of course, you can use them to make uh, payments uh, in certain jurisdictions, in certain companies, but generally speaking, they are more like an investment asset class, a very, well, I would say volatile one that can either like uh, go up or go down like enormously in a short period of time. Therefore, it's very well, interesting and, and risky at the same time. So as you can see, the, the, the approach you know, uh, to CBDC and crypto is actually very different. So I don't think that one is a Trojan horse to the other, to the point that even though it was said before, like a couple of years ago, that some central banks or many were designing their CBDCs to, to some extent, uh, fight uh, the rise of cryptocurrencies. Well, I mean, maybe this was their initial idea, but as I said, there are like so many differences between CBDCs and cryptos that I feel like the goal in the end will be different. I think that most central banks right now are designing CBDCs to make transactions, payments much more efficient, much more seamless, to facilitate the cross-border payments as well, not so much to destroy or to fight the crypto world. Because I mean, to be honest, and leaving aside stable coins, which overlap a bit with CBDCs, when it comes to cryptocurrencies, they are like so different. I mean, I don't think you can like uh, really compare, let's say, the digital yuan or digital euro in the future with, let's say, Bitcoin. I mean, what each one of one like each one of them offers, uh, what you can do with each, with each one of them is like so different that I don't think that one is a Trojan horse to the other. I mean, of course, the more used a country is to making uh, electronic payments, the easier it will be for that country to. To adopt a CBDC, but for example, let's look at China. China is adopting successfully the digital yuan, but they are not doing so because they are used to trading cryptocurrencies. I mean, actually, as you know, cryptocurrencies are, are virtually banned in China. I would say that it's easier in China to deploy a CBDC, mostly because people are very used to making electronic payments via uh, Alipay, WeChat Pay, so it's easier in there. So I would say the best way for people to get used or not used to a CBDC is not so much whether they they trade cryptos before or anything like that, but whether they are used to making electronic payments or not. So I would say that CBDCs maybe should be more related to electronic payments, uh, like mechanisms like WeChat, Pay or Alipay, in that sense than cryptocurrencies. No, because the difference between the digital euro and Bitcoin is, is huge. No, I mean. It, it's actually very huge. And, and then to make it even more complicated, as you know, there are countries like El Salvador last year in Central America, which tried, well, actually they did it, no, to, to establish Bitcoin as their legal tender, but that, that's even like much more complicated, you know, having a cryptocurrency as, as legal tender. 
But again, going to what you were saying about the difference between CBDCs and um, peer-to-peer crypto, a, a, a digital coin issued by a nation state in a particular jurisdiction will necessarily be legal tender within that jurisdiction. I mean, it, the, it seems it seems bizarre that they would pass, you know, they would allow the creation of such a, a cryptocurrency without, you know, it being legal tender or, you know, one form of, you know, acceptable payment. But whereas, you know, with, with things such as Bitcoin, the position of the HKMA has long been for over a decade now, I think. These are digital commodities and you trade them at your own peril. They don't. They don't regard them as uh, a currency. So let's talk about the benefits of blockchain. Many say there are things like you know immutability. It enables DeFi, but is is this truly necessary? Um, well, I mean, blockchain is uh, necessary for DeFi, you know, for cryptocurrencies, but not not so much for CBDCs. I would say that generally speaking, blockchain as a technology is actually becoming quite necessary in general, not just for DeFi. Um, because, well, I mean, we were discussing this before when, when talking about uh, Islamic finance, but we can discuss this about many other areas. I mean, we all know that blockchain was uh, invented to, to underpin the operations of cryptocurrencies. We all know that. So, of course, um, I mean, blockchain and cryptocurrencies, like they, they were born like together, to put it this way. But at the same time, I think that blockchain right now is much more than just uh, cryptocurrencies. And uh, for example, I mean, I think that probably the, like the world's most clear example is China. We all know that China has been very tough on cryptocurrencies to the point that they are virtually banned. But at the same time, China is very blockchain friendly so china may not be blockchain i sorry may not be crypto friendly but china is very blockchain friendly i mean we all know uh, for example Ch about china's bsn blockchain service network and many other interesting projects that they have which and, and to the point that even president xi jinping said in 2018 i think it was that uh, companies in china should seize the opportunities offered by blockchain so the thing is blockchain even though it was created to, to underpin cryptocurrencies, it's much more than just cryptos. And um, it can be applied to, to many industries. It can be applied to the banking industry in general, aside from DeFi, it can be applied in trade finance, it can be applied in video games, in healthcare, and in, in like in IoT. Uh, for example, when it comes to trade finance, Hong Kong is working now on this E-Trade Connect uh, platform, uh, which is actually very interesting because uh, the, the use of blockchain in trade finance will help make the, those uh, paper-based processes much more efficient, much more modern, and much more seamless. So uh, I think that blockchain as a technology is necessary. And then when it comes to DeFi, it's of course um, necessary. I mean, because at the end of the day, that's why blockchain was was invented. No, I mean, blockchain increases trust, security, transparency, and traceability of data across a business network. I would say, though, that um, one mistake that certain companies or people make is that even though blockchain is, of course, interesting because of all the reasons I just said, um, I mean, blockchain doesn't solve like uh, all the problems in the world. And I say that because I've seen that quite often, especially in those blockchain conferences that I, that I spoke in. Well, certain people who seem to be willing just to, to use blockchain just for the sake of using it, no? because I guess it's trendy to say that your company uses blockchain. But the thing is, there needs to be a use case in your company you know, for blockchain. I mean, blockchain doesn't solve everything. So perhaps there is no use case for your company to be using 
blockchain because it will not make any process like faster because maybe you don't really need that no so my point is yes it is necessary but it depends um, i mean i think there is no doubt that blockchain is necessary for cryptocurrencies but then when it comes to cbdc's it's different because as i said before cbdc's are actually quite different from from cryptocurrencies so uh, if you ask me like will cbdc's use blockchain the answer is it depends sometimes yes sometimes no i think and, and based on my conversations with uh, central bankers there is a great use case for blockchain in wholesale cbdc's wholesale cbdc's those aimed for facilitating uh, interbanking operations you know, such as for example um, this project in which uh, the hong kong monetary authority is working uh, mcbdc bridge alongside the people's bank of china and the central bank of the united arab emirates and the bank of thailand in this kind of um, wholesale cbdc projects um, blockchain can actually play a role in there when it comes to retail cbdc's uh, such as for example the digital yuan digital euro in europe in the future i don't think that blockchain can play such an important role in there so i would say blockchain for defined cryptocurrencies yes for cbdc's partially not necessarily but you know i think a recurring theme seems to be governments again don't object to the infrastructure that blockchain can create for them to use they may have certain misgivings about private crypto but in terms of using the, like you said, China, China's clamping down on crypto, but China's very blockchain friendly. So again, they're seeing alternative uses for the underlying technology to improve the financial sector. Uh, you know, which makes me think about distributed ledger technology. It's for the longest time the view was, okay, DLTs can increase transparency in the banking sector if all the blanks, if all the banks plug in and participate in the same DLT, then we can see, quick, a regulator can see where risk is emerging in the system because they've, everyone's got access to the same ledger. And then you can go after certain institutions and say, okay, maybe you might want to unwind some of those trades. But increasingly what I and other journalists who speak to the institutions are saying, hearing is, they don't want that. That the attitude is still very competitive. There, there is no mood in that for collaboration to that degree, and that banks want their own closed circuit distributed ledger, and that if there are any benefits to cost savings, they're going to go straight to the bank. They're going to go straight to the executives. They're going to go straight to the shareholders. The the average bank customer isn't going to see too many of those benefits. I mean, am I overstating the case? Am I, uh, I mean, are the journalists that say such things being too cynical, or is is that is that an accurate assessment that banks want their own closed circuit DLT technology? But then, if that's the case, that kind of defeats the purpose, then doesn't it? Because there's otherwise there's no social value in that. It does it doesn't it doesn't lessen systemic risk. It doesn't increase transparency. It doesn't increase good governance or you know, lessen the chance of uh, malfeasance in future? Um, well, I think it's actually a very complicated topic because uh, the thing is, I think it's going to depend pretty much on, on each and every bank. I mean, we all know that uh, traditional banks 
I mean, I don't want to generalize. Some are, are very tech-oriented, but generally speaking, some of them, they don't love change that much. Some do, but some others not so much. So, of course, I mean, when you start talking about uh, DLT and all that stuff, well, I mean, it may take years, no, for certain banks to to realize the, the potential of that. So, I mean, well, I don't think you're cynical. I think there is a, a truth behind the, the words that you say. Uh, but at the same time, I think we need to, to look at this, like maybe from an optimistic angle in the sense that a few years ago, um, and I experienced that myself, just bringing up the word blockchain or crypto, when talking to a banker, like force them to, to, to stand up and, 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 you know, leave the room. I mean, I experienced that myself. You know, I was talking to a banker a few years ago. And just by mentioning like fintech, uh, blockchain, cryptos, like you, you could see them like really scared. And now there's been a change. You know? I mean, many banks, I mean, are tapping into blockchain, even into crypto cryptocurrencies. I mean, I don't want to, to cite like examples or anything, but we know that certain banks in Asia created even like, um, well, uh, things similar to crypto exchanges, and we saw that in Singapore, and we are seeing that in, in other places as well. So, and we are seeing many big investment banks investing in, in crypto portfolios as well. So I would say that, um, of course, we're not in a perfect situation yet, uh, in the sense that, uh, well, some banks, of course, are still reluctant towards the, the use of certain technologies. And, and when it comes, you know, what you said now about DLTs is actually accurate, but at the same time, we need to look at where we were, let's say, in 2018, maybe, and where we are now. And I think there's been a huge change. These areas are becoming much more institutionalized. And this is so, not just because uh, their use, the use of blockchain cryptocurrencies is much more widespread, which is true, but also because uh, governments are trying to regulate this area. So I guess the more regulated it will be, the easier it will be for for incumbents to try to tap into these areas, even though, of course, these issues that you mentioned will will remain. No, but it's it's part of this like eternal friction between banks versus fintechs. No, I mean this thing that used to be competition before, but now it's becoming much more of a cooperation. No? I mean uh, banks can can bring a value that fintechs cannot bring, but at the same time, fintechs can also bring a value that banks cannot bring. I mean certain banks have been like there for over like 150 years so they have this reputation this this client base but at the same time when it comes to technology well i mean certain fintechs are much more advanced than them so i think it's all about finding the perfect combination and whilst these issues that you mentioned uh, remain i think that uh, slowly uh, they will start to to maybe punish at least in certain jurisdictions so, i mean of course it's very difficult to to make like any general statement but I think the case of China, as I said before, it's very interesting. You know, and I know I will keep repeating this one, but because it allows you to see that uh, that you don't need to be crypto friendly to, to love blockchain. I mean, that you will be able to, to create all those huge blockchain networks and, and create many uses for blockchain, for enterprise blockchain without necessarily needing to to be crypto friendly. You know? So I think this is a clear example that, that this area is actually much more um, rich than that one could expect when one starting to read about this. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, but then you look at problems in the crypto space. I'm thinking mainly of 3AC, Coinbase. There have been other incidents. I mean, uh, these highlight the shortcomings of DeFi. So how would you propose regulating DeFi and crypto in general, given the international and technical challenges? Well, I think maybe that the first mistake here has been some 
kind of misinformation in the sense that we always talk about cryptocurrencies and certain people actually got to believe that they are currencies in the same way that, that I don't know, or Hong Kong dollar or euro. But we're actually talking about crypto assets. No, we're talking about a risk investment asset class. And as such, I mean, of course, like prices can skyrocket, but they can also like uh, go down very quickly. So there is a risk in that. And well, aside from that, I would say that um, even though the, the percentage of illicit transactions using cryptocurrencies has reduced enormously these last few years, uh, mostly because many more people use cryptocurrencies for not illicit purposes, uh, some issues still remain. I mean, we all uh, still see that, especially those who are involved in this in this world. I mean, it's very common to to hear about failed projects or even about uh, shady projects. No, uh, I know that this happened before in traditional finance as well, but being uh, defy an area where money can be made so easily by, by certain people, uh, where things go so fast, I would say that the amount of, of, to put it to some extent, shadiness has been well, bigger in this area, especially because there are like many regulatory like um, loopholes or, or, or perhaps there is even like no regulation at all you know, in certain places. So that's what makes this area much more prone to certain like uh, malfeasance. Um, I mean, and we are now in the midst of this crypto winter that's undeniable. And we saw, for example, projects like Terra and Luna uh, well, collapsing uh, in May, June. Uh, we also saw that the price of Bitcoin and most cryptocurrencies like uh, going down enormously. We saw many people losing their savings. I mean, yes, of course, I mean, that that's sad. But I think that uh, the best way or the only way for me to scan, to try to prevent these issues from happening in the future again are basically two. I mean, first of all, it's a, First one is about education. I mean, people need to know more about tokenomics. No, certain people invest in these areas without actually knowing what they're investing in. I mean, uh, this is not like a normal currency. It's not fiat currency. No, I mean, tokenomics actually, it's a different part of economics to put it some way. It has like certain different rules. I mean, of course, it's connected to to traditional economics, but but in some ways not so much, you know, because certain rules are different and then the, the whole like scenario is different. So I would say this education, first of all, is basic. And this is why podcasts like yours and these courses like the one that HKU offers in FinTech as well are very necessary nowadays. And then secondly, of course, there is the, the regulatory approach. I mean, investors need to be protected. No, I mean, they need to know that, that, that well, that not just that there is a safety net, but first of all, investors and companies as well. Now they need to know what they can do and what they cannot do. I mean, I would say that I know that uh, some people are kind of uh, crypto libertarians, to put it this way. I mean, I know many people who are like that. I personally myself, perhaps it is because I initially studied law and then finance. I advocate for a much um, well, clear regulation of this area. I don't think that uh, this area should be like unregulated, as some people claim. And I know it because, I mean, friends of mine, people in some WhatsApp groups that I am in, they, they claim that uh, the idea behind DeFi is precisely, or it was born because people wanted to escape this, you know, um, world where central banks and governments keep control on you. So they have this kind of utopia libertarian mind. I mean, I respect that. But the thing is, I don't think that's, that's feasible in the long term. Because as you said before, I mean, not only no country will allow like any cryptocurrency to to compete and, and and destroy their fiat tender, but their fiat currencies, but also because the whole idea also makes it much more prone to well, to schemes and and and, and frauds. You no, know? so this is why I think that more regulation is required. I'm not saying by that that this regulation needs to denaturalize um, what cryptocurrencies are. I mean, cryptocurrencies can remain crypto even though they are regulated. I mean, actually, I think it's kind of the opposite. The more regulated they are, as long as the regulations are are well, 
safe and, 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 and wise, I think that, that what the regulations will make actually is to make this industry thrive. I mean, the reason why certain banks or, or traditional banks, investment banks, didn't want to tap into these areas is, I mean, to a large extent, because of the lack of regulation, because of, of a lack of clarity in this regulation. No, I mean, I wouldn't say that, that it's because there is like any kind of reputational issue. I know that sometimes the reputation of cryptocurrencies may not be the best, but the thing is, uh, to me, the thing that hinders the, the, the institutionalization of, of cryptocurrencies to a large extent is precisely the lack of a proper regulation in certain jurisdictions. I, I know this is changing. No, I mean, I'm not generalizing. I know that Hong Kong has its laws, will pass its laws as well. Europe is working on Mika. So, I mean, there are many regulations like either in place or about to become in place. Uh, but still, I mean, I foresee personally a much more institutionalized environment. And, and I think that this is actually where we should be, be going. I mean, I know there is a debate as well on whether national rules can can address the risks created by these assets, because, I mean, it's kind of easier to regulate your own CBDC, for example. I mean, you as a central bank of whatever country launch your own CBDC, so you will be able to to like completely control it. Whereas when it comes to cryptocurrencies, it's much more difficult because a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin like anywhere in Australia, in Hong Kong, in Spain, in Japan. So the thing is how to regulate that. Well, I mean, of course it's possible, but it's much more complicated precisely due to the decentralized nature of DeFi, but more complicated doesn't mean impossible. And to me, the more regulated this area is, as long as these regulations are, are like uh, wise enough, uh, the, the more investors will be protected and even the more um, entrepreneurs and, and companies in this area will know what to do, how to do it, and then what not to do. And I think that this um, DeFi world that we saw for the last few years, where anyone without a license could operate and start like taking loans, giving loans, and, 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 and doing all these financial transactions, this, this will eventually end. I mean, we cannot like see these huge companies, you no, know, like moving so much money around from investors, from, from retail investors in many cases, uh, without like a proper regulation behind. No, I think that that this is going to be the future, and to some extent, I hope it is. No, because uh, we need clarity. We need. Clarity. I was recently, for example, working on a on a white paper uh, at Digital Euro Association. It was called uh, "Stable Coins: An Introduction and Recommendations for the European Union from the Private Digital Euro Working Group." And we precisely tried to do that. No, we we focus on on the private digital euro idea, so stable coins, basically. And we try to, to analyze how they are regulated in Europe and how they should be regulated you know, in order for for them to coexist with uh, CBDCs and avoid any future issues. Because, because at the end of the day, if you look at most of these frauds or issues that, that we've been seeing in the crypto industry these last few years, most of them could be to some extent avoidable you know, with the right like licenses, regulations and requirements. Something you alluded to then is, do you really need blockchain for CBDCs? And if not, why, why use it? Yes, um, I mean, we, we discussed this a bit before when talking about blockchain in general. Um, when it comes to CBDCs, we do not need blockchain, but blockchain can be used in that area. Um, based on, on my research and, and talking to central bankers, I would say that there is a better use case for blockchain in wholesale CBDCs, that is, those uh, designed for, for interbanking operations, such as uh, well, the well-known Hong Kong MCBDC bridge project, or, or there was this project in uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates called the Project Other. 
in which precisely the use of DLT was analyzed, and it was concluded that it would be beneficial to use DLT in that case, because we are talking about whole cell CBDCs, uh, which, because of its of their nature, makes it much more um, like um, well recommendable, no, for for the use of blockchain. Then, when it comes to retail CBDCs, well, I don't see such a good use case compared to wholesale ones but i mean who knows no i mean i guess it could be used in that area as well so i would say that unlike cryptocurrencies we don't need to use blockchain in cbdc's but in certain cases it might be useful to do so and i think that's one more difference with uh, cryptocurrencies as well no i was saying before that cbdc's are centralized uh, they are not like uh, for trading compared to cryptocurrencies. One more difference is precisely the technology behind CBDCs. Will some of them use blockchain, but just some of them and just to, to a certain extent. So I think that's another clear uh, difference. But again, the thing about CBDCs is that each central bank will design their CBDC in a different way depending on their interests and policies, which means that the future digital euro, for example, will not need to look at all like the future digital yuan, and the digital yuan is already a reality, no? like the digital yuan right now, or the future digital, uh, I don't know, US dollar, for example. No, each CBC will be different because each central bank will put their focus on, on like an, a different area. I mean, CBDCs can be used, I didn't say this before, but they can be used for, um, for cross-border payments, for um, as a tool to improve financial inclusion, to fight financial crime more efficiently for monetary policy purposes and so forth and so on. So the thing is, each central bank will design their CBDC differently depending on which area they want to put their focus on, which means that the technology behind them may be different as well. No? But generally speaking, this would be like the summary about blockchain and CBDCs. Well, going to your point about each each jurisdiction is going to have somewhat different focus. Yeah, I mean, that that's a facet of the broader point that the markets are in different levels of development in this in this region, so harmonization becomes difficult. The other point about CBDCs is people point to it as a further intrusion of government, you know, spying and control. And Hong Kong recently gave out stimulus money to revive the economy during the pandemic, and they did so electronically. Had they used a CBDC? then in theory, it could have directed economic activity by requiring people to buy certain goods, not others, and uh, so placed expiry dates on the CBDCs. So what do you think about that? Well, um, I would say that um, privacy is one of the main concerns when it comes to CBDCs. Uh, We had this survey in Europe, the European Central Bank, before deciding to work on, on the on digital euro, um, they launched a public consultation. Uh, it was launched in October 2020, two years ago, and the results were published in April last year. And actually, the, the thing that most citizens and companies in Europe, or at least most of the citizens and companies which responded to that survey, were concerned, like number one was privacy, or the lack of privacy that could come from a CBDC. I understand that this might be an issue to some people in the sense that if I said before that CBDCs can be used to uh, to fight financial crime more efficiently, it means that in theory it should allow uh, well, people to to track uh, your transactions. It should allow, sorry, not people, but central banks and governments to track your transactions much more intensely. Uh, this could be true. At the same time, I don't think this should be such a big concern because, first of all, 
And there is a very interesting note, an analytical note by the Bank of Canada covering this. But the thing is, the right technologies exist nowadays to make sure that CBDCs respect privacy. I mean, the use of cryptographic techniques to, to make this happen, to make this privacy happen, already exists. So it's going to be up to each central bank to, to decide you know, whether they want to use this technology or not. But generally speaking, I mean, we are going to, I mean, the technology exists. You know? It's not that there is no option for, for CBDCs to be private enough. Then it's going to be up to each central bank. Uh, I don't think that central banks will use CBDCs to spy on their citizens. Um, because, I mean, to be honest, they can already do that in other ways, you know. I mean, uh, many people tell me, uh, especially when, when I give any seminar on CBDCs, they tell me like, oh, you know, governments are going to spy on us now that we have CBDCs, uh, this, that, blah, blah, blah. But the thing, but the thing is, that's we hear too all the time. Yes, exactly. But, but the thing is, I mean, for example, look at uh, whenever you, you get like any payment to your account, um, even if it's like using the electronic means of payment that, that we use, like let's say that you receive like a large transfer and then you make like a large payment to, to, to anyone. I mean, quite likely your bank is going to communicate this transaction in most jurisdictions at least to your inland revenue um, department, to your uh, tax authority, even though you're not using CBDC. So my point is, uh, and there is a very interesting um, table by the Bank of Canada where you can like analyze how private each means of payment is and the only like almost completely private means of payment is cash you know i mean cash of i mean it's like they rank from zero to three each means of payment and cash is the only one that that pretty much scores like three in most of all the criteria and then when it comes to their means of payment not even cryptocurrencies are completely private you no know? i mean so the thing is of course cbdc's can, can bring this concern to people, it's true. And yes, I mean, I know that in theory, this could be like a tool for central banks to control more this and that. But the thing is that, I mean, I don't think that we should be living in this kind of bubble by thinking that, oh, CBDCs will allow governments to spy on us, whilst now uh, everything we do is private. The thing is, I mean, if a government wants to control, like, uh, why you got this this large bank transfer in your in your account, and, and why you paid this, why you paid that, they can do that anyway, because there are mechanisms for them to do so. So I don't think that CBDCs will make such a big difference in that sense. It will be, it's true, a tool to fight financial crime more efficiently, which means that I understand why this concern exists, but at the same time, I mean, generally speaking, the right technology is there to prevent cent or well, to, to, to prevent CBDCs from being like uh, any kind of spying tool. So I would say this shouldn't be such a big concern, and I know it's a big concern in too many people and in many countries, but I don't think it should be such a concern. I mean, I don't think that CBDCs are like the first tool that will allow governments to control things that they couldn't control before. I mean, if anything, maybe. Maybe it would make this control easier, but but that's all. I mean, this control could exist before. And also, CBDCs have the potential to use technologies to prevent uh, that from, from happening, that loss of privacy. And then knowing that it is such a concern for citizens, I doubt that many central banks will use them as any kind of spying tool. Okay. It's also been mentioned that this could be a use for foreign policy. That, that in, in an age of uncertainty, uh, sanctions being casually used back and forth by different parties, some say recklessly so, that certain governments could use CBDCs for foreign policy. So with China, the Belt and Road Initiative, for example, um, saying to a developing African nation, we'll give you the electronic yuan with software enforced restrictions. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, actually, to me, that's one of the key points about CBDCs. Um, I actually published recently a paper at, at the Blockchain Research Institute uh, on, on the digital yuan for cross-border payments. And I focus mostly on, on what you said now, the Belt and Road Initiative. Well, I said before that CBDCs offer many advantages, or they can offer many advantages. They can make payments more efficient, uh, transparent, um, faster. I mean, there are many. They can promote financial inclusion. But one key area to me is that of um, of using CBDCs for cross-border payments, for cross-border transactions, and therefore uh, allowing countries to to use them maybe from a geopolitical angle. And that's undeniable. That's undeniable. I mean, this is one of the main advantages that CBDCs can offer to certain countries. And I would say that when it comes to the case of China, um, well, I mean, I know that no one said that officially, but to me, and I always defended that theory on my papers and, and conferences, this geopolitical angle, this idea of allowing China to internationalize the yuan through digital yuan is basically one of the main, if not the main key driver behind China's uh, well, attempt and, and, and finally like success you know, in launching the digital yuan. I mean, we all know that the yuan's inter internationalization has been hindered by the lack of, the, of full convertibility of the yuan. I mean, this is why the, the greenback, you know, the US dollar, accounts for like most of the transactions in international trade, whereas the yuan accounts like for very few. And well, I won't. Say, I, I'm not going to say that this will change overnight. I'm not going to say that the digital yuan will make the yuan like a stronger currency than the dollar in international trade or anything like that. I mean, I don't know if that will ever happen and if so when that will happen i mean i cannot know that and i don't think this is going to be like anytime soon but it's true that at least it will play a role in that area the digital yuan because it's i mean not just in the belt and road initiative no it will allow china to internationalize the yuan to make it much widely used in international trade i mean for example uh, we saw that china's central bank the people's bank of china signed in february 2021 one year and a half ago a joint venture with uh, SWIFT, uh, whose goal was precisely to internationalize the yuan. Then we also saw China two years ago signing the RCEP Free Trade Agreement, the Regional uh, Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is a huge trade agreement that will create this massive free trade uh, area, which encompasses like 30% of the world's population and GDP, uh, in mostly in, in APAC, no, in East Asia and Pacific. Um, this will be also like a platform, a great platform for China to try to internationalize the yuan for transactions within this RCEP free trade agreement. Uh, we also saw, for example, uh, China working on projects like the BSN, Blockchain Service Network, which will create as well an interesting platform. And of course, uh, as you said before, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, the BRI, um, will be as well a great platform no, for China to try to internationalize the yuan, especially with countries which... Um, well, which, which are already like trading like enormously with China, so they will be for certain much less reluctant than others to use the, 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 inter the digital yuan to settle transactions. So yes, I think that this cross-border payments, international payments angle is key to uh, digital yuan. It may not be key to all CBDCs because as I said before, how each CBDC is designed depends on its central bank, which means that, um, I don't know, let's say for example, Perhaps in Europe, the, the Eurozone is not that interested in this cross-border aspect. I mean, I don't know, I'm just like speculating, no? I mean, you know, it's just like an example. But in China, there's been this clear uh, interest. So even though um, it's been launched uh, so far domestically, no, I mean, we all know that um, that in early January, the People's Bank of China launches the digital yuan wallet for Android and iOS. We all know that um, 
that uh, well it's being uh, like uh, used in 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 a few cities uh, and, and it's being used by 260 million people so it's not even like um, like massively used within china yet i mean the amount of people using it is growing and growing by by, by the day but still uh, it's not massive within china yet so of course thinking about its international uses like phase two and i don't know when we will get there i don't know if it's going to be like this year next year but still i think this international angle of course will play a major role and well to what extent this will like reshape um, like uh, geopolitics international transactions it's way too early to know but i think that um that this is to some extent what encouraged you know the federal reserve in the us to work on their digital us dollar as well i mean we all know that under trump's administration uh, the idea of a cbdc in the us was um, kind of uh, disregarded they they thought it brought no advantage but then when they saw china being so fast with the digital yuan they started to work on, on on this idea of a digital US dollar as well, no, because I think that well, China has an edge. I mean, they started much before uh, others, no. So uh, yes, I think the, this um, geopolitics angle is, is undeniable. I certainly think there is an element of keeping up uh, with an emerging Cold War, not one to be outshone, outdone by the Chinese on the part of the Americans. Uh, certainly, on the part of the Chinese, uh, one doesn't get the sense that. They necessarily want an internationalized yuan that um, uh, may be in a limited scope in testing places like Tianjin and Hong Kong and you know a few other places. But one doesn't get the feeling they're ready to take the the, route, the, the uh, helm of the international financial system and do full blown uh, internationalization of the yuan because you, when you do that, you're uh, you're at the mercy of the global currency markets and uh, Hong Kong and the UK found that out quite uh, you know quite the hard way in 1997 uh, with the Asian currency crisis speaking of the UK uh, one question is the UK recently launched a consultation on digital assets do you have any comments or thoughts on the matter um, well they are very active lately on this on this area I know that um, um, the UK Parliament is seeking advice from industry players and policymakers on regulating cryptocurrencies and digital asset sector. And I know as well the Law Commission published a consultation paper in, in the UK uh, containing provisional law um, reform proposals to to ensure that that the law recognizes and, and protects digital assets in well in our current digital digitized. Uh, well, no, actually it was the UK government that asked the Law Commission to make those recommendations, you know, to, to reform the and make sure that the law is capable of accommodating uh, crypto tokens and other digital assets. Well, I think um, it's a very interesting project, of course, because the UK is one of the um, most important economies in the world, a G20 country, you know, and, and I think this underlines what we said before, you no, know, first of all, that there is a problem nowadays. This problem is the fact that digital assets are becoming more and more important. It's not just that thing that, that certain people invested in, just a very few people. It, it's much more than that. No? I mean, its use is becoming like much more widespread. Um, I mean, many people are starting to use that. Even many traditional banks incumbents are starting to tap into this sector. So uh, for a country like the UK, having such a financial center as London, I think that, um, well, passing this this these reforms and regulating this area like uh, more efficiently is actually becoming uh, 
basic. No? And this is a movement that we don't just see in the UK. I mean, the European Union, for example, is working right now on, on MICA, you know, these um, new regulations as well that will play a huge role uh, too. So I think um, it's important, of course, to see the UK uh, moving in that direction. Um, but at the same time, we cannot like uh, forget that it's a difficult uh, topic. No, I mean, I don't think that these areas can be like regulated like uh, overnight uh, because I mean they affect like many many different uh, areas. You need to make sure that you are protecting uh, retail investors, that you are protecting like any investor whatsoever. You need to make sure as well that um, that well um, a country's uh, monetary policy, financial stability, is not affected by by that. No, by by crypto. Currencies, no, and you need to make sure to, to establish like uh, boundaries and in general to, to establish some level playing um, ground rules uh, to make sure that that, uh, that cryptos may keep existing, but, but keeping in mind that there are many more things to protect. Because, and I know it's kind of difficult because I'm I'm kind of in between. No, I mean you know that uh, I work in this blockchain CBDC area, but at the same time I'm always saying that a balance needs to be. Uh, met. Uh, I'm saying that because, I mean, I don't like like either of the two positions in the sense that I know that some people hate blockchain, defining cryptos just for the sake of hating them. But I'm also I don't I, I identify either with those people who, uh, well, add ideas of utopy, libertarianism in this, forgetting that um, I mean, like it or not, we are living in a world of, of governments and we need a, a certain order and structure. So we, we, can, we cannot bypass that. You know? I mean, we cannot bypass governments and central banks in our structure and our laws just to accommodate the idea of a new investment asset class that that can bring freedom and i don't know what else you know you need to find this this balance and because finding this balance will actually be the best for the industry you know i mean the only way for the industry to leave this crypto winter and thrive again is by becoming much more uh, widespread institutional and, and, and regulated i think that and i know I mean, this will draw criticism from from certain people, but I think that's the best way for me to, to move forward. Therefore, um, proposals like these uh, from the UK are actually not just uh, interesting, but I would say necessary. You know, it's interesting that you say that uh, a lot of people are not sold on crypto. A lot of people are not sanguine about it because they say you're dealing with something that fundamentally requires electricity and the internet to use the, the internet is not out there in the ether it's not its own realm it's not its own jurisdiction to access the internet you need servers servers exist in physical tangible places within jurisdictions and nation states can seize those servers and shut them down if they so choose so because of that the view is CBDCs, cryptocurrencies, digital assets, all depend on IT and communications infrastructure. Does that mean, therefore, that CBDCs are not practically viable in places with poor infrastructure or poorly educated populations? Well, uh, when it comes to CBDCs, I would say they are viable. They are viable depending on how they are designed. It's possible to use a CBDC offline if they are designed in that sense. For example, China's Digital Yuan allows for offline payments and many other CBDCs will allow for that as well. Um, so I think that's a, that's a clear advantage. I mean, this, uh, this idea, this capacity of using CBDCs for making offline transactions. And this is why I say always that CBDCs have a huge potential you know, to be used in 
as I said before, in certain remote areas or towns of uh, Africa, um, China, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, provided Central America. Provided, provided the infrastructure exists, right? Because, I mean, yes, I mean, if you're in a war zone and, and you're in Somalia and you're trying to get out of the country, your best friend or the however many greenbacks you've got in your pocket or euros you, or gold you've got in your pocket and your, you know, your bags, however much you can carry. That, that is your currency. That is your exit strategy. That, that is your, you know, path to safety. That is your survival. Exactly. Survival. Exactly. No, no, I mean, I fully agree. If you are like in one of those cases that you said, trying to flee a war zone, you mentioned Somalia, uh, I mean, anywhere, no? I mean, Afghanistan, any other country uh, which experience any kind of trouble whatsoever. Uh, of course, I mean, what you need to rely on is the cash, no, the greenback that you're going to be carrying with you. I mean, I don't think that no one will be then thinking of, oh, let's check whether my central bank launches CBDC or not, and how to use it, whether I can use it offline, whether I can access my wallet. I mean, you need to go for the fast and safest way. So yes, of course, in that sense, you're completely right. In the most like normal cases, I would say that generally speaking, uh, even the poorest countries do have an infrastructure. No, I mean, uh, if you go to, to certain countries in Africa, as we said before, no, I mean, people use uh, cell phones, people use laptops, even if they are poor, it's kind of easy to, to see them use that in, I mean, in certain countries. What they lack sometimes is other things, you know, this physical access to the bank branch, etc. In those cases, CBDCs can play a huge role. Um, of course, some people will say uh, cryptocurrencies can play that role as well, virtual banking, yes. I mean, CBDCs is not the only tool in that in that sense but i think what makes them safer than cryptocurrencies or or less safe depending on on the on the context is the fact that it's launched by a central bank which means that its value will not like fluctuate that much but at the same time in case for example of sanctions i mean we've all been reading these last few months about sanctions against certain countries for for certain reasons so of course i mean in that case a cryptocurrency will help you perhaps bypass these sanctions more efficiently but this is a different scenario no i mean generally speaking yes of course i mean you need like at least a minimal id infrastructure but this is why i would say that a country which lacks this minimal infrastructure will not certainly even think of working on a CBDC and launching a CBDC because it will be it will not be possible for them. And even if the CBDC is launched, even after launch, there might be like uh, additional problems. For example, Nigeria launched their Inaira exactly one year ago. And I must say that from a technical and IT perspective, their starting was a bit bumpy. I mean, many people from Nigeria told me that, that they hadn't been able to use much their in IRA, the CBDC, because the first month were actually a bit uh, messy. It doesn't mean that at the end it will not be useful, but I mean, of course, it's if, even when you do have infrastructure, there may be additional problems. So, I mean, let alone if you don't have an infrastructure whatsoever. So, um, yes, I mean, I'm not saying that it will be like a, a magic bullet to, to overcome uh, the lack of financial inclusion like uh, worldwide uh, CBDCs. I'm not saying that, but it can be an effective uh, tool, especially in, in Southeast Asia, for example, as well, I mean, Philippines, Indonesia, places in Africa. I mean, anywhere where people can have access to technology, but what they lack is maybe the physical access to a branch. In there, it makes a, a good case. Okay. Shifting gears, but broadly speaking, I'd say the same technology at play. Hong Kong's considering an electronic Hong Kong identity card. Any thoughts on this? Well, yes, I mean, I know that, that Hong Kong started to, to talk about the uh, electronic uh, Hong Kong dollar back in June last year, I think, when, when the FinTech 2025 strategy was unveiled by the Hong Kong uh, Monetary 
authority. I know as well that uh, a technical white paper was released in October uh, last year. And well, I mean, it makes sense to, to see Hong Kong working on that because the Hong Kong Monetary Authority is actually one of the central banks. Uh, I mean, as you know, it's Hong Kong's de facto central bank, so we could call it central bank. One of the world central banks, which is actually more uh, expert on CBDCs because Hong Kong is currently working on more than one CBDC project. I mean, there are many central banks which are not even working on one CBDC project. So Hong Kong is currently working on three. I mean, before the HKED, there was, um, of course, the digital yuan because digital yuan, even though it is designed by the People's Bank of China. Um, it was tested in Hong Kong as well for, for cross-border payments, international transactions. So the HKMA was involved in digital yuan tests. Then the HKMA as well has been involved for several years in the MCBDC bridge project, which, as you know, it was known before as Intanon Lion Rock, because this project initially involved only the HKMA and the Bank of Thailand. And then the, the People's Bank of China and Central Bank of the United Arab Emirates were included. So the EHKAD would be like the third CBDC project in which the HKMA is currently uh, working. Uh, my point is that uh, the HKMA seems to be like uh, well aware of how to work with the CBDCs. Now, there is like a, a clear experience you now in Hong Kong in that area. So this is not something uh, new. I would say that um, well, an EHKAD would allow Hong Kong, I guess, payments in Hong Kong to be pretty much what we said before in general, no? I mean, uh, much more um, efficient, uh, faster, no? I mean, the HKD at the end of the day would be like a retail focus, uh, digital currency, CBC, equal to, to the electronic version of banknotes. Um, the user will need, in theory, a mobile phone to to keep the, and use a currency for transferring money, shopping, dining, um, whatever, no? I mean, and... It's, of course, uh, an interesting idea, same as any CBDC. Uh, but the thing is, of course, uh, there are many things to consider. No? I mean, first of all, like <coughs> whether and um, how to, to protect privacy, and this applies to any other CBDC. Um, then, then what's the actual use case for that? No, I mean, I said before that it can be used to, to make transactions more efficient, but it needs to be also considered whether the, there is like a strong enough use case. I think there is, but once again, this can be debated, no? So I would say this is pretty much, no, the, the, the status of the EHKD. And I think what makes it more interesting is to see that it comes from the HKMA in the sense that there is this, this past experience in dealing with CBDCs. It's valuable to have the imprimatur of the HKMA uh, because that shows there's serious backing for it. But as you were saying, they've got three projects up and running that's led to the critique in certain corners that they're trying to do too much and that they're, that's why their reach exceeds their grasp. Whereas Singapore, you know, they focus on what they can achieve first and then it's little baby steps. It's slow and steady wins the race. And that's an approach that seems to have worked well for Singapore. As opposed to gra grandiose, grandiose, ideas, but the achievement gap is quite staggering because, again, Singapore has taken the, the slow and steady wins the race approach, and it's worked well for them. No, I mean, of course, it's a different approach. It's working very well for Singapore, but I would say that Hong Kong is in a different uh, position uh, because, I mean, when it or not, uh, as we said before, Hong Kong is the gateway to China, which means that Hong Kong needed to work on the digital yuan because China, I mean, Singapore is not like um, attached, no, to China. 
so in this sense it's much more um well, autonomous in the sense that that whatever they design it will be designed by them to be used by them but but hong kong has this disadvantage in this different situation uh, of being part of china which means that um even i mean even if they didn't want to they had to start working on the, on the digital yuan tests in order to allow china to test how it would work for cross-border payments so it's a completely different situation from that of of singapore i mean I'm not aware of how the HKMA, HKMA is working internally on that, no. But I mean, I think that it's feasible for them to be working on these three projects. Uh, so far, uh, the MCBC project, for example, has been working well. I mean, to the point that it was initially designed to be a, just a two central bank project and it was enlarged to include two more central banks. So, yes, I mean, it may seem too much. I mean, of course, it, it's a lot, no? A three, CBDC projects for just a central bank, especially the central bank of, of a non-sovereign nation. No? So, I mean, for, for the central bank of a special administrative region to be working on three CBDC projects, I mean, undeniably, that's a lot. I mean, that's actually a very unique case because in most cases, in, I mean, there is, for example, this website called CBDC Tracker, which has been designed by, by some colleagues at Digital Euro Association and Boston Consulting Group, and it's actually been cited by the International Monetary Fund as well. And this website is like a world map where you can click on each um, country of the world and check in which is their status on when it comes to their work on CBDCs. And you will see that most countries are not even working on one CBDC. I mean, I know that more than 80% of central banks in the world are working on CBDCs, that's true, but it means that almost 20% of central banks are not working on any CBDC whatsoever. So, and even those which are working on one CBDC, it's normally just one, and in some cases, we are talking about very slow projects. So, of course, having the HKMA, HKMA working on three projects actively may seem a lot because, well, I think it's a lot. But, I mean, as far as I know, I don't think they, they cannot handle it. No, I mean, it seems to be going well so far. So I think it's a different approach compared to other places. And then the final result will, will tell whether it was too much or not. But I think based at least on the preliminary results, it should be fine, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, they've got some multiple projects running concurrently, raise some eyebrows. But like you said, I mean, these are these are very different societies and they've taken very different approaches to development in this space. I mean, Hong Kong is more market led and the fintechs complain that, you know, the things move slowly among, within the giant banks. Uh, they lumber ahead you know, ever so slowly, whereas in Singapore, it's more state-led, and uh, consequently, in some ways, it's more dynamic, that the the deliverables, that, that which is tangible, seems more uh, apparent, but the private sector, clearly, in Singapore doesn't like it, because they, they, they'd like to have more of a say in how the sector develops, but uh, those were all the questions uh, our audience had for you. Um, was there anything you wanted to add? Uh, well, I mean, no, not really. It's been a pleasure to to participate in this podcast. And, well, I think uh, at least the audience could get, like, the, the general ideas, no, from these topics. I would say just as a final um, remark that um, I think the, the, the magic or what makes this area so exciting is that there is no no single solution no, to anything. I mean, any country may be like very CBDC friendly, but not so crypto friendly and the opposite. So this future of money will actually be very fascinating. Uh, it will allow for many things to happen. Uh, and this 
this idea of being fascinating is also, I mean, it comes at a cost, no? And this cost is the regulatory cost. I mean, it will imply for central banks, for governments to be much more, um, not even much more active, no? They will need to, to, to regulate faster certain things that, that, uh, that maybe didn't exist before. We all know that the law tends to be slow. I mean, we always say that, that, that technology goes like 10, 10 miles ahead of the law, but, but the law will need to make an effort to catch up as quickly as possible because things are changing very fast and it's going to be very important for, for central banks and governments to try not to be left uh, behind because there are actually many opportunities and, and this, this idea you know, of the future of money being so fascinating uh, will also involve for, for central banks to catch up. It means as well that central banks will, I mean, they are in many places as well, but they will need to be even more um, like tech, tech oriented in the sense that they will need to to do well to have the the, the right people knows uh, who knows as much as possible about uh, technologies. No, it's not just about as it used to be before. Maybe like uh, you know studying law, traditional law, and traditional finance, and that's all. No, things are changing fast, and and you cannot miss this tech angle. Do you have any uh, Do you have any long term projects, uh, white papers you're working on? I mean, I, I know I mentioned your podcast uh, on the up front, but um, do, do you uh, do you have anything ongoing that uh, our viewers should know about? Well, I, I just published that um, uh, that paper on the digital yuan in cross-border payments. It was published uh, three weeks ago. Also, the digital euro um, white paper uh, that that report. Uh, right now, I'm not working any working on any paper right now. Uh, other than, than well, my podcast and our stuff, but I published this too recently. Oriel Cadvia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me.